This is chapter number 7. And we will begin in verse 1. Again, so good to see you here this morning. Ezra chapter 7, verse 1 says these words, And after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sarai, the son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariah, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. And just in case you're wondering, we're not going to start a sermon series in First Chronicles next week. <laughs> this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some people, or some, I should say, of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach His statutes and rules in Israel. And this is God's Word for us this morning. We won't read through chapter 8, but we will get into it. But you know, the, the word that is used among scholars and theologians is the word anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, this is a term... A phrase that we give to God, or a word to describe, I should say, when we give God human-like characteristics. Okay, so when we use words and phrases that describe God in terms of human characteristics, it is called an anthropomorphism. So when we say that God's eyes are, are searching to and fro throughout the earth, that God's eyes are looking around the world, that God's eyes are upon us, we do not mean that God literally has eyes like you and I do, whether two or four or wherever we got. Okay, God is spirit. He does not have human characteristics, but we understand that God does see what is going on in our lives. And so when we tell our children, my eyes are on you, I got my eyes on you, we are conveying to them that we are watching what they are doing, and so it is with God. God does not literally have eyes, but He is the all-seeing God. He is the omniscient God, which means the God who knows 
everything. God does not have hands or feet. But yet when we talk about God running to a place, we understand the omnipresence of God. God is there with us. And again, He's watching over us. And one of these anthropomorphisms is this idea, this word, this phrase of the hand of God. We understand what it means to have our hand upon somebody's life. Again, our child who does not necessarily go where we want them to go and we're in a public crowded space, we might put our hand upon them and lovingly and firmly guide them to where we want them to go. Okay, We might put our hand upon somebody else in a different manner. And so it is with God's hand being upon our lives. If you've noticed in these first ten verses, we have already saw this phrase being mean used two different times. God hand is upon us. And this is something we talk about as the church, as a church, if you would, we often talk about wanting God's hand to be upon our church, wanting God's hand to move in our church. We want God's hand to move in our nation. Upon us as a people, we want the hand of God to be upon us. We do not mean that we want a literal hand like I'm holding up before you this morning. But what we are talking about is God's sovereign power in creation and His actions on behalf of His people. This is what we want to see happen. And this is what I mean really when I talk about rebuilding and restoring as a church, as a nation, as a people, what we want to do to see our country, our land, our world, what we want to be a part of as a church, seeing God's peace and blessing and prosperity being restored upon us. And I've tried to make the point over the last several weeks going through this book here in Ezra that the hope of restoration, the hope of rebuilding is not going to be found Tuesday by who wins or loses. We know it's not going to be found in Washington. It's not going to be found in Harrisburg. It's not going to be found on Wall Street or Madison Avenue or any other places, even Silicon Valley or wherever. The hope is only going to be found through the church of Jesus Christ. And we want to see God's hand upon us as a church. We want to see God being on a move as we sang about this morning. We want to see God working and moving in a mighty way on our behalf. We want to see His presence and power and glory moving and manifesting in great and mighty ways in the church with lives really being changed and stirred and set free, liberated. People being empowered. People saying, yes, I will go. Again, as that song says. But here is the question for us as a church, and that is this. Do we want to do what it takes to see the hand of God upon our lives? Are we willing to put in the work, the effort, the labor that is needed 
To see God's presence and Spirit being manifest in our midst. The question that I ask you this morning is this, what price are we willing to pay to see God's hand upon this church? This is the question that is and must be answered in our hearts today. And that is my challenge to you as we get into His Word this morning. And that is why this book of Ezra is so fascinating. And why it's so interesting to, to read about Ezra because we read about a man who was uniquely used by God in a great way. We read about a man whose hand, the hand of God was upon his life as we are going to see. And yet we also see in the life of Ezra a man who was willing to pay the price to have God's hand moving on his life. And He challenges us and He stirs us and He asks, are we willing to pay that same price? And so we get into these chapters this morning in 7 and 8 and we notice first of all the hand of God upon the life of Ezra. The hand of God upon the life of Ezra. And what we see here. In chapters 7 and 8 is kind of a biographical sketch of this man Ezra. We've kind of talked about what he's done all the way through chapters 1 and chapter 6 and how he went and, and rebuilt the temple, was instrumental in seeing the temple rebuilt of bringing the people of Israel back into Jerusalem from, from the land of captivity, from Babylon after the 70 years exile. And we've seen how God was moving and working in and through His life in this rebuilding process and now we come to a few chapters that is written uh, some people say up to 60 years after the rebuilding of the temple and it portrays for us a biographical sketch of this man Ezra verse 1 again says now after this in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia Ezra, the son of Sariah the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah and a whole bunch of other sons tracing his lineage all the way through to the priesthood of Aaron. And it's done for a very specific reason to show that Ezra had a unique calling and ability. He was one of the priests. He was one of the ones that God had placed His hand upon Aaron and said, you're Children are going to be a part of the Levitical priesthood. And so Ezra had a right. And that's why the chronology is established here. But anyways, it traces through and we see how God's hand was on the life of Ezra calling them back from the land of Babylon back to their homeland. If you go back a few weeks ago and you remember at the beginning, I told you that the exile in the Babylon was prophesied by Isaiah, prophesied by Jeremiah. They were told you would be in Babylon for 70 years because of their constant rebellion against God. But after those 70 years, Cyrus the king, a wicked king of Persia, rose up and he said, hey, it's time for you guys to go back to your homeland to rebuild your temple. And God put his hand upon the life of Ezra, upon the life of Nehemiah. Of course, you can read about that in the book of Nehemiah, obviously upon Zerubbabel and others. And these men were instrumental in bringing the people back to their homeland. And so we're told in 
verse 6, that Ezra went up from Babylonia. There's a man who was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord that God had given, and the king granted him all that he asked for. And why did he grant him all that he had asked for? For the hand of the Lord God was on Ezra. The king was giving favor to Ezra. You've got to remember, this isn't like our country, our republic, our democracy, whatever you say, where, where we are, are supposed to be a government of, by, and for the people. This was a man who did what he wanted to do. You can remember by reading through Daniel and reading through the book of Esther, which are all written during this time frame. And even Esther, his own wife, if the king did not want to see his own wife, they would take her away and separate her head from the rest of her body. So this is the the land in which they are living in. And yet this king is giving favor to Ezra. The king doesn't know he's doing this. He's thinking he's currying favor with the Jews. He's pacifying them. He's giving them a little bit of what they want. And they're going to be loyal. They're going to continue to pay taxes. But he doesn't realize the reason he is doing what he is doing is because God's hand is on the life of Ezra. And God is using him. God is being instrumental in using Ezra to fulfill his plans and His purposes. So we read that in verse 6. Verse 9 repeats this phrase. Verse 9 says, On the first day of the first month, He began to go up, talking about uh, Ezra from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, He came to Jerusalem because the good hand of God was on Him. Takes this journey lasting Four months. And yet He fulfills this journey. Why does He fulfill? Because the good hand of God was on Him. And you can go on further and read in this chapter and we'll look at a few verses, but we'll notice that when Ezra started out this journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem, he did not just start with a change of clothes and a new pair of shoes and a couple of horses or donkeys to make this ride. In fact, he starts out with a letter, a decree from the king that he is to go. And that not only is he to go, but he is to go with gold and silver and the furnishings of the house of God that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar when he first took the temple and destroyed it and brought the people of Israel into captivity. In fact, if you read verse 20 and 21, it says these words, and whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Man, wouldn't that be exciting, Jim, to go to the orphanage in Africa or take these shoe boxes and go around the world and say, hey, we've got a letter here from the President of the United States. Whatever money you need, spend it. We'll reimburse you. Man, wouldn't that be all? I wouldn't even, I'd care for a governor, a letter from the governor. I wouldn't even need the president. <laughs> Oh, it would be so great to just go around the world and share the gospel and say, look, all the resources we need to build whatever church we want to, the government of the United States is going to provide. It's exactly what Ezra is doing. 
Verse 21, I, Artaxerxes, the king, I make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. In other words, God was supernaturally providing, even out of the treasury of a pagan, wicked kingdom, the supplies necessary for the work of God to go on in Jerusalem. What is Ezra's response in verse 27? He writes these words of praise and he says, Blessed, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Ezra recognizes what is going on is really a divine and sovereign act of God. Verse 28, he says, He has extended to me His steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. And Ezra said, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Again, the journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem to begin the rebuilding process. Ezra goes to the king and the king says, whatever you need, take the gold and silver back that was taken from you by Nebuchadnezzar. Whatever else you need, just write a receipt and we'll reimburse you. We'll pay for it. Don't worry about it. And Ezra says, God's hand is on my life. God's hand is on my life. Chapter 8 gives us a, a little bit more information about this journey. Verses 1-14 through 14 tells us who was involved in this journey, who was going on a journey. And in the midst of this trip, we're told about a special person, a minister for the house of God. And Ezra says there in these words in verse 18 of chapter 8, it says, And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and his kinsmen. In other words, it wasn't just that Ezra had the gold and the silver. He also had the men that were needed to help in this rebuilding process. The men who would, who would needed to be helped or to regovern the territory of Israel, of Jerusalem. The men who was needed to provide leadership and wisdom and guidance. And how did they get these men and women that were necessary for this rebuilding process? Because the good hand of God was on them. They brought to them a man of discretion of the sons of Molai, the son of Levi. God's hand. Was on them. Ezra goes on and mentions not only that they need the resources, not only did they need the people, the manpower, but they also need protection. They needed guidance because they're, they're traveling with a caravan of wealth. They're traveling with a lot of resources. And as we talked about in previous week, there were people who were intending to trip them and dismay them and deter them from their work. So they needed protection. Chapter 8, verse 22. 
Ezra says, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen and protect us against the enemy on our way since we have told the king. The hand of God is, on, is for good on all who seek him. The power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. In other words, Ezra says, look, uh, we needed protection. I know we needed protection, but I told the king the hand of God was upon us. And now I am going to act in according to what I believe. God's hand will be upon us. They leave, they make the journey, and guess what Ezra tells us in verse 31 of chapter 8. We departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. And He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. Sure enough, we're not going to tell the king we need protection. We're going to trust that God's hand is upon us. We make it to Jerusalem. Guess what? God's hand was on us. Six times in two chapters. The hand of God being upon the Jews was mentioned. Six times Ezra realizes this is not because of his goodness, his efforts, his abilities, his powers as a leader, as a priest, but rather it was because the hand of God was upon his life. As I said, this is what we want, isn't it? We want God's hand to be upon us as a church. We want God's hand to be upon us as a people. We want to be a place where healing and and deliverance and restoration and most of all salvation takes place. Where people in the Sleigh Belt region and the Poconos say, God is on a moving and God is working there. Where lives around the world are being touched and changed and hearts are being regenerated through what God is doing in and through this church. Question is though, at what price are we willing to pay to see God's hand upon our lives? So we see the hand of God upon the life of Ezra and then we see in our second point, The reason, the reason the hand of God was on his life. Why was the hand of God upon the life of Ezra? Why was Ezra being used in a great and a special way? I'll give you a couple reasons here. First of all, it's because of Ezra's devotion. His devotion to The Word of God. His devotion to the Word of God. We're told, verse 6, that Ezra was a scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord had given. Ezra was a man who was skilled. He knew the law of Moses. He knew the Word of God. In verse 8, we're told Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. 
And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Why? Because the good hand of his God was on him. And listen to verse 10. It says, For Ezra had set his heart. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. To study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He had devoted himself. He had dedicated all of himself and all of his life to this ministry, to studying, to observe, and to do, and to teach the law of God. Loved God's Word. He loved God's people. Devoted himself, not as a hobby or a pastime activity, but had devoted himself as an obsession almost, if you would, to studying God's law, to observing God's law, and then to teaching. It was not just a passing fancy. It was not a fleeting pastime but rather a single-minded devotion that says, I will do what God's Word requires of me. Even as David said in Psalm 28 verse 8, or 27 verse 8, David said these words, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Look at these three things here that are mentioned. A heart set on studying, on learning, on knowing. An understanding what God's Word says. A heart that is set on, on really understanding and knowing what God's Word teaches in our life. Just again, as Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. This is the one who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. We cannot do anything for God if we don't have a heart set on knowing what God wants in our life. We do not, cannot, will not see God moving and working if we are not serious and devoted to what God says in His Word and if we do not set our hearts on knowing His Word. And how is it that so many of us know the stats from last night's game? We know what's on sale on Black Friday at our favorite store. We know exactly what's going on in our political arena, but yet when it comes to God's Word, we don't have the foggiest or faintest idea of what God says. We're so busy knowing everything else about everything else. We are neglecting the most important thing. Again, the psalmist says you, you don't stand in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the way of skinner, sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but you delight in the law of God and on your law you meditate. Day. Night. It's not just knowing the Word of God. There's plenty of people 
that know the Word of God. It was directed to the course that was being taught at a university. Someone, I began to watch these videos. They were made available on YouTube. And, and this guy was a New Testament scholar. He knew all about the New Testament. It wasn't too long in this video that he admitted he was engaged in an immoral lifestyle. So, well, that's great. I guess he's one of the leading scholars and doesn't want to do what God's Word tells him to do. I didn't watch the rest of it in case you're wondering. See, it's not just knowing God's Word, it's also doing what God's Word tells us to do. Ephesians 4 says, We must put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And we are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. How do we put on the new self? Romans 12 tells us, doesn't it? Be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds are transformed as we hear the Word of God and we begin to do the Word of God and we begin to live what God's Word tells us. And write them down, but you can read through the rest of Ephesians chapter 4. We're told, don't get angry and let the sun go down on your wrath. We're told the word to be kind and compassionate to each other, tender-hearted and forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. Look it up in Ephesians chapter 4. And when you look it up, I want to tell you something. You're going to have to start forgiving that person that you have anger and bitterness in your heart against. Not because I say so. I'm not a priest. I'm just me. Good, bad, and ugly. Probably mostly bad and ugly, right? I say it on the authority of God's Word. That's what God's Word tells us to do. And so many of us, we want to come, we'll read it, we'll, we'll listen to it. And we won't do anything about it. God's Word tells us to forgive. It tells us how to conduct ourselves. It tells us to pray for those who persecute us. Pray that God's hand would be upon their lives. And I'm so amazed as I read stories of persecuted individuals, how much they prayed for their captors. And I thank God, could I ever, ever do that? But I don't have a choice, do I? God's Word says to bless my enemies. Pray for those who persecute me. It's not just knowing and doing. It's also passing it on. Ezra passed it on. Ezra studied to know God's Word, to observe it, and then to teach it to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 6 gives us the most important prayer in Jewish life and faith. One they would say every morning as they got out of bed, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your might. And listen to what verse 7 says. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and you rise up. We'll never see the hand of God move in our church if we are not devoted to the Word of God, if we do not have our hearts make up our minds and we will get the Word of God into our lives and get our lives into the Word of God and then we will pass it on to the next generation. It's not that our kids need a laser light show. It's not that they need video game systems or whatever else. They need to hear and know the Word of God. That is what's going to last and stick in their lives. But it wasn't just the Word of God. Look also at Ezra's willingness. His willingness to fast and pray. His willingness to fast and pray. Ezra 8 verse, or chapter 8 verse 21. It talked about how he was making the journey. He was worried about making it with the resources that he had. He was worried about making it without the enemy coming and attacking him. And look at what he did in verse 21. It says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God. That we might seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves and our children and all our goods. And verse 23 says, So we fasted and we implored our God for this. And God listened to our entreaty. Ezra realized that whatever happens, whatever comes to pass, it will happen as we come to seek the face of God, we are humble enough to recognize that we need God's hand upon our lives and we are powerless to do anything apart from prayer. Dr. A.C. Dixon was a famous preacher of years ago. One said when he was speaking upon this theme of prayer, he said, When we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. On and on he went. But then he said, when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. Anything that will happen in our lives, in our church, in our nation, in this world will happen as a result of prayer. Will happen as a result of people coming and seeking the face and the hand of God and believing God to move and work. You're here this morning and you're praying about something in your family or something in your life and it's troubling you and it's bothering you. And I ask you this very simple question. You want God to do something about it, but have you got on your knees and prayed with Him? Prayed to Him about it. Have you asked God to move and intercede and work on your behalf? Have you asked God to do something that only He can do. And so many times we're so dependent upon everything else. 
Oh, we want somebody to give us a, a wise word. We want somebody to just tell us what to do. And we don't want to get on our knees and say, Lord, I need your help in this situation. You see the reason the hand of God was on the life of Ezra. It's because Ezra set his heart to know and to seek God and His Word. I'm telling you, as we do this as a church, as we do this as a people, as we do this as a nation, as we do this as a world, we will see the power of God moving in ways that we never, ever thought possible. So let me ask you something. Are you concerned about a situation, an area of your life Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a career trajectory, maybe whatever it is. Let me ask you something. Have you taken time to get in God's Word and see what God says to you? Have you got on your knees and prayed and asked for the intervention and the help of God? Listen, what should have happened in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, should not have happened. But God's hand was on their lives and nothing, nothing can stop the hand of God when He begins to move. People want to say they're done. Church is done in the West. The church is done in America. The church is done here in Pennsylvania. I want to say wait until the church gets on her knees and begins to seek God. Call out to Him and to cry out for His power and His mercy. We began to live by the rules and the laws of God and began to order our lives according to His Word. Wait and see what God will do. And don't you want to see God move in our midst, in our lives? Let's set our hearts and devote ourselves to Him and let God's Spirit and power touch us. Amen. Let's pray this morning, if you would. Father, we come. We come as a church and we confess. We confess our sins of relying on ourselves, depending upon our own ways, We realize and we recognize, God, we have failed too long to seek you in our lives. God, I see your hand moving upon us as a church. God, in a community, in an area where so many churches are shutting down, people are going away. I see your hand is upon us. God, let us not forsake it or think that we can do this our own way, but let us constantly seek you, seek your word, seek your face. God, as we do here, as we do here, as we do forgive and bless and empower, change our hearts and our lives, I pray. Yes, this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Ushers, why don't you get ready? Today is the first Sunday of the month. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. Celebrate together. You know, God's Word tells us so many times that when we seek Him, He will be found of us. We call upon Him, He will hear us. He will answer our prayers. We come before the table of the Lord each and every first Sunday of the month. We come. Thank you. We confess to God that we believe that You are our Savior. You are our healer. Your blood has set us free. You have made us new. We trust in the work of grace. We trust in the power of the cross, the power of forgiveness. And we reaffirm our commitment to seeking Him, to following Him, to pursuing after Him all the days of our life. So this morning, if you're here and you've been slack, if you've let up, if you've not been pursuing your relationship with God like you need to, I want to tell you this morning, there is forgiveness, there's grace, there's mercy for you. Find it this morning at the table of the Lord. Receive that forgiveness. and Let God touch your life once again. So again, our ushers are going to come. They're going to pass around cup to you it has bread underneath and juice on top if you know Christ as your savior you're welcome to participate with us if you don't now would be a great time to ask him to come into your heart and forgive you of your sins receive the grace that he offers as you take this morning commit yourself again I will follow you I will seek you as a deer pants for water brooks, Lord, my soul is thirsting and longing after you. And I will seek your face.